rescue operations. You're listening to the news on RTHK. AM, FM, and live online. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Tuesday the 18th of January 2022. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Peter Lewis here with today's business and finance headlines. Economic growth on the mainland slowed in the fourth quarter of 2021, but by not as much as economists were expecting. GDP expanded 4% from a year ago, slowing from 4.9% in the third quarter. It was the weakest growth rate in a year and a half. For the year overall, GDP grew 8.1% in 2021, faster than the 8% expected by analysts. And China's retail sales grew 1.7% year-on-year in December, sharply down from the previous month's 3.9% and well below expectations. Retail sales grew by 12.5% in the year overall. Online retail sales grew 14.1% in 2021, the slowest annual pace since 2014. The People's Bank of China has cut its two main policy interest rates by 10 basis points. China's central bank injected 700 billion yuan of liquidity into the banking system via the one-year medium-term lending facility at 2.85%, down from the previous 2.95%. It was the first policy rate cut since April 2020. The PBOC also injected 100 billion yuan via seven-day reverse repos at 2.1%. 10 basis points lower than the previous rate of 2.2%. President Xi Jinping has defended China's common prosperity drive at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. Speaking via video link, he said the common prosperity we desire is not egalitarianism. We will first make the pie bigger and then divide it properly through reasonable institutional arrangements. As a rising tide lifts all boats, everyone will get a fair share from development and development gains will benefit all our people in a more substantial and equitable way, he said. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Hao Hong from Bocom International and Sam Favre at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan, it's Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Yes, markets were closed overnight for Martin Luther King Jr. Day, but European shares rose. The regional stock 600 index added 0.7% after declining 1% over the course of last week. London's FTSE 100 climbed 0.9%. Hong Kong stocks extended their losses after the China economic data was released. By the end of the day, the Hang Seng index was down 165 points or 0.7% to 24,218. The Hang Seng Tech Index declined 0.8%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite was up 0.6% at 3,542. Macau Casino stocks soared for a second day after the world's largest gambling hub announced Friday the biggest reforms to its gambling laws in 20 years. Sands China surged almost 15% and Galaxy Entertainment jumped over 7%. MGM China gained almost 12% while Melco International rose 5.1% and SGM Holdings climbed 4.8%. In the commodities markets, 
Brent crude oil is 0.4% higher at $86.54 a barrel. Gold is trading at $1,819 an ounce. And global bond markets came under pressure on Monday after Treasuries sold off on Friday on increased speculation of a March rate hike by the Federal Reserve. Australia's benchmark yield climbed seven basis points to 1.92%, while New Zealand's 10-year equivalent added as much as seven basis points to 2.58%. Japan's 10-year yield was steady at 0.15%, and Germany's 10-year borrowing rates jumped to within two basis points of turning positive for the first time in almost three years. China's bonds gained after the People's Bank of China cut a key interest rate for the first time in almost two years. The yield on the nation's 10-year debt declined as much as three basis points to 2.77%. And in the currency markets, the euro this morning trading at $1.14. The bucks at 114.6 Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.36.5 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 63 cents. Chinese yuan is at 6.35 versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin is down 4% at $42,200. Starting out a quiet day of trading in Asia as US markets were closed on Monday. In Australia, the SX200 up 0.2%. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has rallied half a percent at the open. The Cosby is up 0.1% in South Korea. And futures markets look like the Hang Seng is going to open flat later on this morning. Times 8, 08 and a half. Let's go over to our Queensway studio and welcome Sam Favreau, Chief Executive Officer of Mandarin Capital. Morning, Sam. Morning, Peter. And on the phone we have with us Hal Hong, Head of Research and Managing Director at Bocom International. Morning, Hal. Good morning, Peter. Uh, let's start with China's economy. Economic growth on the mainland uh, expanded 4% from a year ago. That's down from 4.9% in the third quarter, the weakest growth rate in a year and a half. On a quarter-on-quarter basis, China's economy grew 1.6% from a revised 0.7% in the third quarter, and that exceeded estimates of 1.1%. Fourth quarter growth was hurt by the fallout from the liquidity problems that have hit some of China's largest property developers and the latest COVID outbreak. And for the year overall, GDP grew 8.1%. That's faster than the 8% expected by analysts. I mean, Sam, um, 8%, pretty good number for the year overall. But I suppose the fear is there seems like there's quite a significant loss of growth momentum in the last quarter. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's pretty good numbers. I mean, obviously, these numbers, you look back to what happened. So it beats expectation. But the problem is you have unbalanced growth. So clearly very strong numbers from uh, external demand. And we saw that also in the trade numbers. Now, what is actually quite worrying in, within China, that's why I think you saw the reaction of the PBOC, is uh, the domestic demand from, uh, from, from, uh, from the, the, the consumers, which is clearly slowing down more than expected. And also the private investment, which is also slowing down. So mm-hmm. this is uh, something they have to uh, really work on because it seems the growth is becoming more and more unbalanced with uh, the uh, weight of the public sector and public sector investment creeping back and making a big chunk of it. Those cons- retail sales numbers were pretty disappointing, weren't they? Growing just uh, 1.7% year on year in December. They, they were, and uh, there are also a lot of headwinds. Uh, you, that's, uh, you know, there's slow, slowing demand, and we have 
tightening credit uh, conditions for a lot of the private sector. We have this ongoing ha hangover from uh, the um, from the, the developers. So far, it's not sorted. So there is clearly potential big loss of momentum there, and who knows how far it can go. How? What are your thoughts on the data? Um, no one would be surprised by a weaker number. So the that the number is actually substantially stronger than what economists are looking for mm -hmm. uh, is puzzling. Uh, I think, in a way, you know, if you look at uh, you know how. Uh, the authority communicates with the uh, with the market. Uh, you know, when it reports a higher number than expected, uh, where you know, in actual fact, you know, the real growth is actually lower uh, uh, than the official number. Then what what it shows is that uh, the official the authority may not be in a haste uh, to ease uh, monetary policy. Mm. So just now, Peter, you mentioned that um, um, the uh, official interest rate, the MIF, uh, now is being used. Uh, to price loans now uh, is is uh, being cut slightly, and I think you know 10, 20 bits cut is not going to change the big picture. You know, which is that uh, demand for credit is very weak. Uh, if you look at the total social financing numbers, uh, you can see uh, mid to long term uh, lending is very weak. Uh, so I would say that you know you have to do more, uh, even though you know I think on the surface you don't want to. You want to steady the ship. Uh, you don't want to convey a sort of an, uh, a dramatic slowdown picture. But then at the same time, you know, you uh, you probably need to do more than just you know 10, 20 basis cuts uh, to uh, to stimulate the economy. So, how does the government put a floor under the economy and stop it slipping further below four percent this year? If these these interest rate cuts, as you say, ten basis points is neither here nor there, is it? Mm, yeah, that's correct. I mean, if you, I think many people in uh, in the uh, economic cycle is looking for uh, is looking for five percent or above growth. And, you know, if you continue this path, uh, if the authority continue uh, what it's doing, then it would be a big ask to reach five percent. I think going forward, uh, you know, we, we've seen some uh, government spending already uh, already happening. Uh, you're seeing the local government brought forward. Uh, the uh, bond issuance uh, for uh, 2022, uh, and also um, infrastructure spending has to go up. Uh, I think the property sector, though, uh, would be still under pressure because the three red line policy is still in place. Uh, it makes it very difficult for uh, the property developers to uh, purchase land and to uh, housing uh, to do housing development. Uh, so I think for for them, for the property sector, really is you know just trying to complete the existing project that is unfinished and make sure that the home delivery is on time, you know, for those people who have paid. Mm. Sam, we, we've seen um, a flurry of measures last year um, on, on sort of like tackling what Beijing thinks are sort of inequality um, in, the, in the economy. They hit the, um, the, the, the large technology companies um, pretty hard and, and delivered quite a big short-term hit to business activity. Now that we've got the economic data out, has that been a big factor, do you think, in the slowdown in the economy? Well, I think you see it in the, uh, on the private side. That's uh, because the common prosperity program is really equivalent to uh, a soft tax. That's effectively what is happening. So on that side, it's definitely going to have an impact. The second problem you have is because it's not, uh, it's not formalized. 
you add a certain level of uh, of uncertainty of how this is going to move forward. So I think there has been a significant amount of uh, of impact, especially on the tech sector. You've seen a lot of these companies starting to divest some of their of their holdings and uh, starting distributing some from a pure shareholders perspective. Yes, this is having a massive impact from a I would say for a more global economic environment, I think it will take more time to see the long-term effect. But I think you are seeing that some of these effects already in the slowing down of the private sector. And what about the property sector? Has that had a big impact as well, the slowdown there? Well, given the amount of uh, wealth which is tied to the property sector, this is massive impact. And that's why they're walking a very tight rope uh, mm -hmm. on that side. And I think that's why we haven't seen a complete... Uh, uh, a complete uh, series of bankruptcies going through because they know they have to support some of these uh, so these developers. That's a question that, you know, in terms of social stability, they have to do something. But clearly, they have been slowed down. People are not buying that much on the property sector, which is string uh, demand stringing uh, a, a fall in the offer. So this is a sector which will take a long time to recover. Mm. What really needs to happen in that sector is a proper, um, a, a proper restructuring and see how this moves forward. Because the longer it drags on, the long the longer the effect will be. Um, how you mentioned the property sector earlier, clearly the property sector going forward, the aim is to make it a much smaller uh, part of the economy. Do you have a sense for how long it's going to take uh, to achieve that? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? And, and what is the property sector going to look like in terms of its contributions to GDP at the end of it if it comes down? Yeah, well, I think right now the property sector uh, takes up 31% of the GDP, uh, depending on, you know, which period you're looking at, you know, which is more or less, you know, one third of the Chinese GDP. Uh, so it has gotten to a point where its contribution has peaked. Uh, urbanization rate uh, has been slowing down and also the demographics aging. Uh, so I would say that, you know, going forward, the mission of property uh, sector's contribution uh, to Chinese economic growth um, has largely complete, or at least you know the rapid, uh, the most rapid period of uh, property growth has has finished. I think going forward, um, it is in the authorities' uh, mandate, you know, to lower the dependence uh, on the property sector, and also you know because of the consumption of capital uh, by the property sector. So if you look at the the sharing of GDP, you know, different uh, departments within the economy, how they share the GDP growth. Uh, you can see that labor uh, share of GDP, you know, over the past two decades um, has been very small. I think it's, you know, it's, it's well less than 50 percent. Uh, so I think going forward, you know, because uh, Peter just now you mentioned uh, coming prosperity. So another perspective to look, to look at this mandate, you know, really is to see uh, how uh, the increase in the labor share of GDP uh, going forward and also the decrease of uh, the property sector and also other sectors that consume huge amount of capital, uh, uh, their share of GDP is going to decline uh, in the years going forward. Sam, what, what can replace it if, if, if property is going to be a much smaller part of, of economic growth going forward? Um, what's going to replace that hit to growth? But the problem with the uh, property market is really it's the main channel of, for for savings in the uh, in China, and there's not really any uh, deep alternative uh, for the uh, average Chinese citizen where to put its money. So I think that's mm. it's going to take a long term 
uh, change of, uh, of structuring, especially financial markets and access to retail, and also long-term change of habits for these to rebalance. I mean, clearly the government stimulate domestic consumption, but really the rebalancing of the property sector, I think it's a 10-year, 15-year process. Mm. So is that, is that part of the reason why retail sales have taken a hit? Because although the price declines in, in property, the sales are down a lot, but the price declines haven't been huge. But, but the, maybe the issue is um, for decades now, um, well, for at least two decades, um, Chinese people have been used to their house home prices going up. So now that they're seeing them going down for the first time, is that affecting their overall confidence in, in and stopping them spending? I, I mean, the answer is clear. Yes, I think so. Uh, there's a lot of factors in China where it's, uh, you know, there's been crackdowns and this, uh, this hitting the, on the property sector, where obviously a lot of the wealth is tied to it. So all the, uh, that clearly would have an impact on the confidence of the, um, of the uh, Chinese citizen. Yeah, well, Peter, to add to that, to add to that um, I think since 2016, um, retail sales growth has been slowing down. Uh, so it, it wasn't happen, you know, during this cycle. You know, it, it, it happened more than five years ago. Uh, pro, uh, retail sales growth has been slowing down, uh, and, and at the same time, property prices been going up uh, in the past five years. When I think in, in 2016, uh, the government instigated a shantytown reconstruction program, where you see the uh, the China Development Bank expanded its balance sheet by about. Uh, uh, 1.2 uh, trillion yuan, you know, which is a huge amount of, of money, liquidity going into the system. So I think as a result, you know, since then, uh, the Chinese property price actually experienced one of the fastest growth uh, in history. Uh, so, but then at the same time, you're seeing uh, retail sales growth slowing down. So I think, you know, even though, you know, some people may contribute, uh, attribute uh, slowing retail sales growth uh, to uh, property price uh, sort of easing. Uh, but, you know, the in actual fact really is that, you know, property price has been sky high. It actually eat into people's ability to consume. Sam, there's another problem, isn't there? Uh, which is the demographics uh, of China, mainland China's overall population uh, increased by less than half a million uh, in 2020. The number of births also fell sharply as well. 10.62 million babies uh, born last year, down 11.5% uh, from 2020. Um, is this going to have a long-term impact as well on the economy? Well, clearly, I mean, uh, you see what's happening in other countries like uh, New Japan. It is going to have a massive, uh, massive impact over the 20 years. So it's a full rethinking of uh, the policy for you know, for children, immigration, which has to be um, to be designed because things. If uh, if you continue on on that trend, obviously there will be a slowing, uh, shrinking working class, and at some point shrinking demand as well, and that's all going to have a, a massive drag on uh, on the potential growth. How, how, how big a problem is it and what can the authorities do about it? Mm, two years ago, um, the authority has relaxed the uh, two-child policy. Right? So you can have you know, more, than, more than one child um, two years ago. And now, you know, basically, the birth control uh, policy has been completely relaxed. But I think this relaxation of policy came a little bit too late. Uh, I think the demographic uh, for the past year the net growth in, in population is about 480,000 people uh, in, a, in a country that, you know, that is 1.4 billion people, right? So I think the natural replacement rate of demographic, uh, you know, is, is negative. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think going forward, you know, there are many things that they're doing. You know, for example, uh, the three mountains that they're trying to remove, you know, property being one of them, and education, the mountain of education has been removed. Uh, so trying to help alleviate the burdens uh, uh, for people to have kids. But I think, you know, it is a very complicated uh, issue, uh, Peter. You know, if you look at the... Uh, uh, the developed countries' uh, demographic trend, it hasn't been particularly encouraging as well. And for years, a developed country has been doing, endeavoring, you know, to resolve the crisis, but fell. Uh, so I would say that, I don't know, it, it would take some genius efforts, uh, genius plans, you know, to revert the trend. Uh, otherwise, you know, you, you're probably going to see a slowing, uh, slowly declining demographic picture. And I want to ask you finally both about common prosperity, because President Xi Jinping was talking about it at the World Economic Forum's online meeting in in Davos. He said, common prosperity we desire is not egalitarianism. We will first make the pie bigger, divide it properly, and the rising tide will lift um, all boats. Sam, what what do you think um, about it? It's the first time really we've heard President Xi defend common prosperity in an international um, sort of forum. But I suppose the thing that I wonder about it is where are the jobs going to come from? Well, this is the thing. I mean, if you start taking too much out of the people who are creating the jobs, there's, there's no more incentive to, uh, to actually create. So it is, again, redistribution is always a fine balance, whether you call it common prosperity or call it taxation. When it's becoming too high, the incentive goes and you kill, you kill the system. So Again, this is a soft ideology principle, which is really going to be down to how this is implemented and uh, uh, practically how much this is going to have as an impact on the private sector. How final word to use? Sadly, we're running out of time. What are your yeah, thoughts? I think, yeah, I think once again, it's a division of uh, labor and capital. You know, how much uh, capital growth is taking out of the GDP growth uh, and how much labor is participating in sharing GDP growth. And so I think going forward, you know, you have to restructure the system to make it more favorable. Uh, for labor to participate and so that you know for for the amount of their contribution they're taking a fair share uh, of compensation and so you can re-engineer the tax system uh, and also the social welfare system to do that Uh, it's going to be a long process but you know we're starting right now thank you both very much that was Hao Hong head of research and managing director at Bocom International Sam Viver who's chief executive officer of Mandarin Capital You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. 8.25 on the phone from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Morning, William. Hi, William. Are you there? Good morning. Yeah, hi. Hello. Sorry, missed missed you there. Um, Let me ask you about the Bank of Japan concluding its two-day monetary policy meeting today. um, And it's doing it as other central banks around the world are moving to raise interest rates. And it's now widely expected that the Fed could raise interest rates as early as March. What is the Bank of Japan going to do? Could it blink here? Well, I think most likely the Bank of Japan will just stand pat. There's been a lot of talk recently about the Bank of Japan beginning to taper. You know, you've had the BOJ increase its balance sheet to about, you know, roughly the same size as the economy, about $5 trillion. And there has been talk of late 
about the BOJ winding back. Mm. But Omicron has changed everything. Mm. And, you know, cer- certainly there are concerns about inflation. You know, suddenly Japan is importing some inflation from overseas, but it's the bad kind of inflation that affects consumer sentiment and business sentiment badly. So the odds are the BOJ will just reassess things to some extent, put out a statement and do nothing. But I think in many ways, the idea that the BOJ will be winding back its stimulus anytime soon um, or that's off the table for now. Although the markets seem to be starting to think that perhaps the Bank of Japan might, because we're seeing the yen uh, strengthen in the last few days. We're seeing uh, JGB yields uh, start to move up to the top of the the target uh, range of the of the yield control uh, sort of policy. Um, do, do you think the markets could be right here? I mean, certainly the, the markets could be right here, but I think the odds favor the BOJ just standing pat and doing very little. There, there could be some recalibration in their, their bond holdings and their ETF purchases to some mm-hmm. extent. I mean, they could certainly do a little bit of fine-tuning, but if you're looking for a major shift in BOJ policy anytime soon, I'm not sure you're going to see it, because even though the numbers out of Japan in the last month or so have looked a little better, Omicron, again, is changing everything. And when you look at China's most recent GDP numbers – and where China's heading in the current quarter, I think that has to, you know, basically put a bit of an air of caution on the BOJ's discussions. And certainly the U.S. and, you know, employment growth is disappointing to some extent. So Japan's, we're looking at the external sector as well. And I'm not sure this is a, this is a time for the BOJ to think it can take some steps that might actually, you know, and certain irk the government, if you will, irk investors and basically send the yen surging. We'll see. Um, what about inflation? I mean, Japan has been suffering from deflation from a long period of time, but it is inflation is now creeping um, higher. We saw a significant jump in December um, in wholesale prices. It seems to suggest that maybe Japan isn't totally immune to the global trend, is it? Well, certainly, but we've seen in the last five years or so that in moments when oil prices have spiked, Japan's inflation has perked up a little bit. It's importing the inflation. And as I just mentioned, that's the bad kind. Mm-hmm. And when you look at companies and you look at consumers, you know, the, the big question here is when companies have confidence to pass along record profits to, consumer, to, to consumers in the, in the form of wage increases. And if inflation is rising from the external sector and Japan is importing it, that the prospect for wage increases in 2022 go down. And so, again, this is this is the kind of bad inflation that Japan doesn't want. They want organic inflation domestically, where basically companies can look at demand rising and saying, well, now it's time to raise prices. And is Japan suffering from the same problems that uh, the U.S. And, and to a certain extent Europe is facing with staff absences because of uh, the virus uh, and then restrictions on restaurants and bars sort of limiting uh, the, the economic growth overall? Yes, and there is, you know, there is concern here about the government announcing yet another state of emergency, uh, which would force bars and restaurants to close early. You know, luckily, Japan hasn't had the same kind of Omicron outbreak you've had, say, in the U.S., um, but the government is very much on guard. And if you do see another move towards a state of emergency in the days or weeks ahead, that certainly will affect consumer activity. That will affect uh, corporate activity. And again, you know, Japan is in this interesting holding pattern where they're looking at the Omicron flows and they're looking at the external sector, the China slowing, the U.S. slowing. And it's, it's, I think Japan right now is in a holding pattern where it tries to figure out where it's going. And that's why I don't think the BOJ will be doing anything big 
uh, in the days or weeks ahead. Is the Japanese labor market seeing the same sort of trends that we're seeing in the US where swathes of workers are just resigning from, from their jobs, giving up all, altogether and exiting the labor uh, market to the extent that over in the US there just aren't enough people to fill the job openings? Are you seeing a similar trend at all in Japan? Well, I mean, Japan certainly has seen a bit of a, a, a so-called great resignation here, but not to the same extent you've seen in the U.S. I mean, Japan's bigger problem is the uh, rapidly aging population. The U.S. doesn't have the same problem because the U.S. is still importing labor. Japan is not doing that so much. So a lot of companies have had to recalibrate and figure out ways to staff. So, you know, they've a lot of Japanese companies are asking retirees to come back. Mm. A lot of Japanese companies are ask, asking housewives to come into the labor force, mm. that sort of thing. So Japan's been grappling with this for some time. But, yes, Japan is suffering from some of these, these COVID resignations, but not to the same extent you've seen in the U.S. William, thank you very much indeed. That's Tokyo-based journalist and author thank William you, Pesic. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Final look at the markets for this morning in Australia. Shares ticking up a bit now there, up uh, about a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan up 0.4%. The Cosby in South Korea down about 0.2%. Futures markets pointing to a flat open uh, for the Hang Seng this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned. Back chats coming up after the news with Janice Wong and Ada Wong on Radio 3. The weather forecast uh, for today, mainly cloudy, one or two rain patches in the morning. And it's going to be cool. Temperatures lingering around 17 degrees during the day. And the outlook is for it to remain cool tomorrow morning, windy on Thursday and Friday. And the temperature right now is 17 degrees. It's 88% relative humidity. 8.32, here's Andy Shrosky with the half-hour news. Police have arrested and charged two former Cathay Pacific flight attendants for violating Hong Kong's COVID-19 rules. The SAR's Omicron variant outbreak can be traced back to the two who breached a required three-day home isolation order and instead visited several parts of the city at the end of last year. Aaron Tam reports. In a statement, police said that their investigations revealed that the two ex-flight attendants arrived in Hong Kong from the United States on the 24th and 25th of December last year. Without naming the airline they used to work for, the force said that during their medical surveillance periods, they conducted unnecessary activities in contravention to the prevention and control of disease regulation on December 25th and 27th. They subsequently tested positive for the highly infectious Omicron variant of the coronavirus. Earlier this month, Cathay Pacific announced that it fired two air crew members who are suspected of breaching COVID protocols. The airline had described the actions of individuals who broke medical surveillance regulations as extremely disappointing. The pair has been released on bail and their cases will be heard at Tunmun Magistrates Court and Eastern Magistrates Courts on the 9th of February. Health officials say they've not found any COVID-19 cases after two lockdown operations in Changshawan and Taipo concluded this morning. One of the residential buildings that was locked down overnight was Po Wa Court in Changshawan, where a family connected to the Silka Hotel case live. The other lockdown at Koi Wo House in Taiwo Estate, Taipo, involves an indeterminate test result from a 23-year-old woman who's asymptomatic. Authorities are verifying her case, but in the meantime decided to test all residents to rule out any infection risks. Around 2,550 people were tested in the two operations. 
Britain is supplying Ukraine with short-range anti-tank missiles as it faces a Russian buildup of about 100,000 troops on its border. The Defense Secretary Ben Wallace said a small team of British troops would provide training. Here's the BBC's Jonathan Beale. Dozens of British troops have been in Ukraine since 2015 to help train their armed forces. But the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told MPs that in light of the increasingly threatening behaviour of Russia, Britain would now also be providing a new security assistance package to bolster Ukraine's defences. The UK, he said, is to give Ukraine an unspecified number of light anti-armour weapons. He said a small number of UK military personnel would also be sent to Ukraine to provide short-term training on those tactical weapons. Join me at 9 o'clock for more on these stories and much more on RTHK.